From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and this is your host, Benjamin Ensor. We've just finished recording our news show. We're bringing you some of the biggest stories of the week, including Apple teams up with Goldman Sachs on savings account. We had Jason Mikula on the show, who's written an analysis of what he thinks of the deal. Is it a win for Apple? Is it a win for Goldman? Is it a win for both of them? Would Apple be able to do the same in other markets around the world? Find out by listening. Go Henry, the fintech for under 18s, has raised $55 million. Alex Zavoda, the chief executive of Go Henry, joined us to talk about how they're going to use the money and his thoughts on how to make sure that young customers are educated and the impact that makes on their lives as adults. And finally, Gossip Girl's Ed Westwick backs European investing app Shares. And we asked the guests who they thought would be the most effective celebrities at endorsing new fintech propositions. And their replies included Greta Thunberg, Marcus Rashford, and Billie Eilish. We'll get into all of this and much more. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Does your product or service work for everybody? Are you unconsciously alienating some of your audience? Packed with all the handy tips and actual insight, our brand new inclusive design report has all of the information you need to embed a truly representative mindset in your organization. Head to 11fs.com forward slash inclusive dash design and download it today. These days, every new potential hire can feel like a high stakes wager for your small business. You want to be 100% certain that you have access to the best qualified candidates available. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. Just add your job and the purple hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring. Then use simple tools like screening questions to quickly prioritise who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash fintech. That's linkedin.com slash fintech to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to episode 674 of Fintech Insider. I'm Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by three charming and insightful guests. Making a welcome return to Fintech Insider, we have Alex Zavoda, CEO of GoHenry. Welcome back to the show, Alex. Can you give our audience a quick reminder about GoHenry, please? Hello. Thank you, Benjamin. I'm glad to be back. Um, GoHenry. GoHenry is a pioneer of financial literacy for 6 to 18 years old. Uh, we've created a new category in financial education when we launched 10 years ago, soon in November, we'll celebrate that. Uh, we are a financial education app and a prepaid debit card with uh, in-app gamified money lessons, uh, which are designed to teach kids and teens how to be smart with money from a young age. Uh, we are the only app to offer the theory, which we call money missions, and the practice, which is the app and the card, uh, all in one place. And uh, we now have about uh, 2 million customers across the uh, the UK, the US, uh, France, and Spain through the acquisition of PixPay, which we did in June this year. Fantastic. Well, we'll be hearing a bit more about GoHenry in the show. Uh, welcome back. It's also a welcome return to Fintech Insider for Jason Mikula, publisher of Fintech Business Weekly. Welcome back, Jason. Um, what's currently got you excited in the world of Fintech? Which, uh, which story are you super excited about at the moment? You know, it is uh, great to be back. Uh, I mean, I think the 
obvious story, which I think we're going to get to in a bit, is the sort of Apple-Goldman nexus, and there's a a lot to dig into there. Uh, So I think that would be the one I'm most excited about. Fantastic. And we are indeed going to get to that story first. Um, And last and certainly not least, we have a debut on Fintech Insider for Gaia Lamperti, producer at Bloomberg News. Welcome to the show, Gaia. Super excited to have you on. Can you give our audience a brief introduction to you and your news beat at Bloomberg, please? Thank you, Benjamin. It's a pleasure to join the show for the first time. Um, I guess my news bit initially was tech innovation in general, but that inevitably led me to financial technology very quickly. Um, so I've been a full-time fintech reporter for about a year and a half with IBS Intelligence, which is a London-based research and media firm. And just about two weeks ago, I started this new role at Bloomberg TV at the news desk, where I help to put together the morning live news shows, and we mostly cover business and finance stories. Congratulations. Uh, Rather you than me on the early morning news shows. Um, And just to clarify, do your views represent the views of your employer or are they just your own views? Thanks for asking. Um, No, on this occasion, they don't. And I do want to stress that all opinions discussed today are only mine and do not reflect Bloomberg's editorial line. Perfect. And with that, let's get into the news. So our first story was reported in the Financial Times and and other publications, which is that Apple, as Jason mentioned, Apple has teamed up with Goldman Sachs on high-yield savings accounts. Apple is launching a no-fee, high-yield savings account with Goldman Sachs for its credit card customers in the United States. The move underlines the tech giant's ambitions to offer more financial products to its billion-plus iPhone users. Apple said the high-yield savings account would be available to Apple Card customers in the coming months. Apple's banking ambitions emerged about eight years ago with the launch of Apple Pay and have now expanded to include credit cards and installment lending. The new savings accounts deepen Apple's ties with Goldman, which worked with the company on its Apple Card, but only has a minimal role in Apple Pay Later, its uh, Apple's Buy Now Pay Later product, which was announced this year but has not yet launched. Jason, I'm going to come to you first. You recently wrote in Fintech Business Weekly that the question of Apple being a bank is a question that doesn't even really make sense. Um, Why not? What does Apple become when it has a savings account? I mean, if it looks like a bank and sort of walks like a bank, um, why is it not a bank? That's an excellent question. And given that um, there is a global audience, I know that it's not uncommon in many countries for there to be a mixture between commercial businesses and banking businesses. So for instance, in the UK, you know, Sainsbury's, Tesco, which are grocery stores, also have financial services arms, including a banking license. In the United States, you know, as far back as after the Great Depression, there's been a separation between commerce and banking. Uh, even with the repeal of some of those laws in the late 90s, a set of laws known as Glass-Steagall, um, the Bank Holding Company Act still prohibits the sort of mixture of commercial activity and banking activity. There is a sort of uh, loophole is not quite the right word, but um, a, a small category of banks called industrial loan companies, which are able to do this. Uh, they're very few in number. They're kind of a, I guess you could say, sort of a holdover, although recently Square uh, or now Block uh, and a student loan servicer called Nelnet did win this type of charter, uh, but it's relatively unusual. Uh, and certainly for a, a very large tech company like Apple to secure the necessary deposit insurance, 
uh, to operate a bank would be, in my opinion, rather unlikely in the current political climate. So when, when I wrote that, and, and that um, quote that you pointed to got quite a bit of uh, <laughs> attention, you know, in the United States context, it's basically literally not possible for Apple to become a bank in the conventional sense of that word. What it can do is assemble a collection of products through partnerships, like with Goldman, like with Green Dot for Apple Cash Card, uh, that give a lot of the same functionality. But Apple by itself has no ability to issue a debit card or credit card in the U.S. and has no ability to hold consumer deposits. I can ask you another question, and I think we'll bring bring the other the other two in. Um, Jason, who who benefits most from this partnership? Is this a win for Goldman, a win for Apple, a win for both? Who's kind of winning here? I mean, it's not a competition between them, but um, who, who's winning here? Who's, who's this good for? So in the strictly economic sense, it's hard to answer that you know, without knowing specific terms of the deal. I think it is very much a PR win for Goldman. You know, their, Goldman's consumer business has had uh, a pretty rough go of it lately in the press, a lot of critical reporting you know, from Bloomberg, from Wall Street Journal, from FT, about you know, how much money has been spent and, and what is there to show for it. So in that sense, I think it very much is a optics win for Goldman. Um, Goldman also you know, does benefit from deposits it will gather. Uh, from you know the embedded savings account within Apple, which at the beginning presumably are going to be very little, but over time have the potential to grow. On the Apple side, you know Apple's making a long-term ecosystem play. You know you pointed out that Apple Pay launched, I think you said like eight years ago, and it's been a long road to grow that into a meaningful scale, you know, particularly in the U.S., which has been lagging behind a lot of other countries in mobile payments. Um, Apple has shown a lot of patience in executing its financial services strategy. So, Apple, you know, Apple Card, uh, the BNPL, which presumably will launch sometime next year, the savings account, you can begin to see Apple putting together the pieces of what I refer to as a synthetic banking stack through its use of multiple partners, where Apple is sort of the, you know, the UX, the front-facing component to potentially a number of banks or different partners sitting underneath. Alex, I want to bring you in here. Um, what, did, what did you think of this story? How, how significant is Apple bringing in a savings account is that a is that a big deal? Do you think? I think it's the <clears throat> the continuation of uh, the the, f- the first uh, couple of steps they have taken uh, with Apple Pay and then with Goldman. But uh, if I look at the more general theme, it just reflects how banking and finance have become so much more ingrained with tech with technology, and and that shift is evident from the rise in the neo banks, but also in consumer tech companies branching into the finance space. And so I think it's an exciting time for fintech. And I know that fintech insider, you, you spent quite a few uh, podcasts on, on that. It's really the the beginning of the explosion of uh, fintech and being embedded into every company almost. So it's an interesting time for us. If you look at us, when we, looked, when we launched back in 2012, I mean, no one was helping kids uh, having access to the digital economy, right? Uh, and there were still very few neobanks around. Now, 10 years after after that, and the pandemic in the middle, uh, the cashless society has been a boom in tech players entering the financial space. So I think it's a good move actually for both parties. It's a win-win to answer your, your question initially. Uh, and it's just the beginning of a wave. 
Guy, what, what do you think? I mean, if, if you're a bank and you're, you know, you're you know, trying to sell savings accounts, trying to win depositors, and suddenly you're competing against Apple, <laughs> what do you think about that? I mean, it, 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 what, what does this mean for, for other banks, do you think? Right. Um, yes, I think what's interesting about this story is that the very idea of bank is, you know, under under scrutiny here. Um, this is a process that, uh, you know, started long time ago with the rise of neobanks and um, big techs taking over financial services. Um, but going back to Jason's point of um, is even a question whether Apple will ever become a bank. Um, I think the question is, do customers even care if it calls itself a bank or not? Um, as long as the product functions well, the UX is great, as usually is with Apple products, and there's you know brand trust and brand loyalty. So I think that's the direction that uh, financial services are increasingly taking. And obviously, this is very scary um, from the point of view of banks who pride themselves of obviously having that, that the label, that title, and all the sort of hustle that comes with that the, from a regulatory standpoint and, and restrictions that they have to, to meet. Um, so I think that's the, the most interesting, the most juicy part of this story. Um, what do you think, Jason? No, I think that's right. I mean, um, you know, consumers don't necessarily differentiate between what is a bank and what is not a bank, right? Uh, so uh, P2P payment services like Venmo or PayPal, you know, not a bank, but offer a lot of bank-like functionality. To your point, it's does the consumer have the capability that they need? Does it solve the problem they're trying to solve? And do they trust it? Uh, and I think Apple is very well positioned to tick those boxes in a way that a lot of other consumer-facing companies or brands you know, maybe are not as well positioned to do so. Can Goldman do this without Goldman Sachs? I mean, let's imagine a world in I don't know, five years' time where, where Goldman and Apple have had some big argument about something, right? And Apple decides, okay, we've had a good run with Goldman, but we want to work with someone else. Can, can Apple move the money away from Goldman? Is, is, you know, how, how dependent is Apple on Goldman Sachs? Could, could Apple substitute Goldman with another partner, do we think? I think it's unlikely. Uh, I mean, Apple just renewed its uh, credit card commitment with Goldman Sachs through, I think it's 2030. So, I mean, the the likelihood of Apple, you know, moving away from Goldman for this specific capability, I think is low. Also, if you look at the uh, press release from Apple about the specific savings feature, it makes quite clear that the accounts are being opened with Goldman Sachs. So my suspicion is basically Apple is functioning primarily as a UX front end. So, I mean, we talk a lot about open banking. That's not exactly what this is, but the idea that like I'm a consumer looking at my Goldman Sachs savings account through Apple Wallet. So if, if Apple were to want to change to a new banking partner, my suspicion is that account, the, the existing account, would sit at Goldman, and they would have to sort of uh, their users essentially would have to open a new account and port that money. There may be some specific information that we'll see in the terms and conditions when this actually launches that will provide insight. But my my uh, strong suspicion is, I mean, one, 
you know, Apple can't do this without a bank. It doesn't have to be Goldman. It could be a different bank. But once Apple goes down this path, there's a very high switching cost to move to a new partner. Got time for one last quick question. And I'm thinking about it from a European standpoint. If you think about the European regulators, they're often quite hot on sort of competition and so on. And, and you know, Guy, you made a great point about how Apple tends to have beautiful user interfaces and so on, great, great customer experiences. Is there a point at which maybe, you know, if Apple tried to do this in some European countries, maybe some of the European regulators would say, hang on a minute, you're, you're taking advantage of your operating systems and so on. Could, could we see an environment where if Apple tried to bring this to Europe or does bring this to Europe, that the European Union might say this is anti-competitive in some way? I don't know, Alex Geyer, if you've got any thoughts on that. I don't know enough about uh, how, how they will react to that. I don't. I mean, it would be strange. I don't think so because the the, the European regulator, I think, is good at uh, really looking at industrial trends. And this one, nobody can stop the reorganization of the value chain that is happening now, which is basically you have a disconnection between the front end and the, call it the treasury, I mean, like the, the, the regulated part. The, 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 that will stay. That, that, that's game over for that. There will be no change on that. You cannot stop that, which is what's happening here, right? <laughs> so that's well, well put. Um, Gaia, last thoughts on this? Um, yeah, no, I kind of agree. I think, you know, obviously the US is a great playground, if we can call it this way, for Apple, um, sort of playing in-house and seeing how it rolls out. I think also the... Um, buy now pay later service that apple is launching has been postponed so um it would be great to see how that you know turns out to play once they roll it out in the us and then eventually they could always decide whether to move forward with um european markets or not but yeah i don't know whether it i mean apple has been under scrutiny recently for different sort of competition issues um but yeah, in this case, I think, you know, we'll see how it plays out in the US. Fantastic. Okay, let's move on to our next story, which is that GoHenry, the fintech for under 18s, has raised $55 million after passing 2 million users. This was reported in TechCrunch and various other places. So UK fintech GoHenry has announced uh, $55 million in new funding, which was worth about £49 million at the time we recorded it, but might be worth an awful lot more in pounds given the current state of the British government by the time you listen to this. Um, the children's debit card and financial app provider has secured investment from previous backers with a strategic investment from the Italian payments company Nexi, which is a new backer. London-based GoHenry offers a prepaid debit card aimed at kids and teenagers. Parents and guardians can monitor their child's spending through their own app, while children receive in-app education about money. GoHenry will use the newly acquired funds to develop new services and fuel global expansion, such as launching in Italy before the end of the year. Alex, super exciting to have you here to discuss this. So firstly, congratulations. It's super exciting. Um, tell us a little bit about how you're intending to sort of use this. Um, so expanding, what, what are you hoping that the, this new fundraising is going to enable you to do for your customers? Well, continue developing the product uh, to the what we think is the gold standard of the market. Continue expanding uh, in the geographies that we are currently in, uh, so the UK, the US, and uh, and Europe. Um, I think we have an impact, and uh, we have a clear mission, which is to make uh, every child smart with money. Our impact, I can give it in one number: ninety-two percent of the parents who use us say that their kids are more money confident since they joined GoHenry. Ninety-two percent. 
So that, uh, for me, speaks speaks about the the quality, the impact we have on uh, on this uh, on parents and, and and children. Have you been? So you, you launched about ten years ago. As you said at the beginning, you're about to come up to your sort of tenth anniversary. Have you been able to track any of the the sort of children who perhaps are young adults now, who 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 were some of your early customers, and sort of see how their financial lives have evolved? Have you done any of those kind of sort of studies or kept in yes. touch with? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we have. Yeah, of course. Um, actually, last year we did a, uh, we commissioned a research with uh, development economics to look at how financial education from a young age can impact uh, adulthood, and the findings are quite staggering. So, I just I'll give you like uh, three of them. Um, uh, Brits who didn't receive financial education as a child are more likely to be unemployed or earning less today than those who did. That's first finding. The second, which is which which is probably even more uh, like. Uh, uh, interesting. Kids who receive financial education will be £70,000 richer in retirement. £70,000. And wow. last, 40% of those who did not receive any financial education said they have no savings at all and they cannot afford to save. So going back to like <laughs> the root of all this, which is the idea born 10 years ago, actually is a bit of a uh, came after the financial crisis of 2008-2009, right? When you look at what was at the onset of the financial crisis, one of the elements was lack of financial education of the consumers, uh, especially in the US, right? So if we can tackle that problem, I think we will do a great service to humanity. Gaia, let's bring you in as, a, as an Italian. Is this, is this something the Italian market needs? Do you, do you recognize this uh, sort of need for financial education for um, children and young adults in Italy? What do you think? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that um, in Italy, we're big on fueling um, the culture of being financially independent as soon as possible, even if this is not reflected in the current level of youth employment, which says a really sad story about our country. Um, I think the last time I checked, uh, Statista said like youth um, unemployment rate was up to 30%, which is very scary. Um, but, you know, sort of um, against this, there's a couple of trends that I think endorse what Alex just said. In Italy, as everybody knows, families is, is big and the money culture comes mostly from your family. In primus, your nonna. And, you know, to this day, I'm very grateful to my nonna for kickstarting my savings account. Um, it's common practice to receive small symbolic amount of money from your family members for even small achievements like good grades at school or, um, you know, playing a nice football match, stuff like that. So I think um, that's big. And on top of that, teenagers, it's very common for teenagers to take on small gigs or side hustles during university or studies, sort of to start, um, you know, make some pocket money and handle the, their finances themselves. And so I think platforms like Go Henry would be really, you know, for those platforms, it would be really a great opportunity to explore these markets. And we with this new um, Italian backer, uh, Nexi, I think you know the opportunity will probably be even even bigger. Yeah, we will launch in Italy in a few weeks. 
So, Fantastic. Oh, great. I hope Gaia, you will be, <laughs> will be on the list. Customers. Has, um, has, has what young adults need to be taught about finance sort of changed? I mean, Jason, I'm sort of thinking about, um, you know, obviously the sort of rising interest rates in the world, but also, you know, the, the sort of explosion of crypto. You know, we've certainly seen you know, a lot of particularly younger men, but not, not only younger men, sort of very interested in crypto and excited about that and so on. Do you think there's any sort of shift in what, needs to be taught to children and young adults? I mean, I uh, I would argue that the fundamental lessons, probably no, right? As far as what does it mean to, you know, save, invest, budget. Uh, I was about to use that anachronism of like balancing your checkbook, which I suppose like reveal something more about me, but... Showing um, your age. Uh, but as far as, you know, the idea of you know, uh, spending less than you make, how you're making these spending decisions. These, I think, are, in a sense, timeless. I mean, to your point or your question specifically about crypto, I think, you know, we are globally at a very interesting moment where, you know, the financial system as constructed, you know, particularly post-World War II, 1950s, uh, and even more so kind of post-1970s coming off the gold standard, like, the world financial system very much feels in a state of flux. I mean, look at what's happening in the UK in the moment, uh, as well as you know interest rates, inflation. So there's there's a lot of uncertainty. So I think you know, is there a role for carefully you know explaining or educating around investment broadly, uh, including cryptocurrency? Yes, um, I would definitely exercise caution around the idea that we should be enabling, you know, 13, 14, 15 year olds to be, you know, trading Bitcoin and Ethereum and, you know, various derivatives thereof. Yeah. Um, be interesting to hear your policy on on, on on crypto, Alex. But but I also want to jump in with another question for you, Alex, um, on, on the fundraising, because in the past, you'd use crowdfunding, but I think this time you didn't use crowdfunding. Um, what was your, what was your thinking about how you how you went out and, and, and raised funds this time? Yeah, we did big on crowdfunding uh, a couple of times uh, in 2016, when we actually broke a, a world record of uh, fundraising from the crowd pure without a VC uh, supporting the supporting the round when we raised four million pounds, which was the maximum uh, allowed then, and then in 2018 when we did another six million pounds. So we have today 5,000 uh, investors coming from the crowd, of which half are customers. So that's 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 an interesting uh, feature of our company. However, uh, CrowdCube or crowdfunding is, uh, uh, I think, a very good source of money in the early stages. Uh, let's call it uh, from seed to mm -hmm. probably series A, maybe. Um, effectively, it allowed us, if you want to leapfrog, to skip the VC stage. Then we went straight from crowd to growth. But now with, uh, let's say, the demonstration of the solidity of our business, basically the metrics we have, etc., it's clear that the amount of money that we, we, can, we want to commit to uh, is bigger than what the crowd can offer. Right. So that's why we, we went after I would say, the more classical route of, uh, of doing a, a growth raise, right? with, uh, in this case, with, with Nexi. And the particular uh, why Nexi, um, it's basically we, 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 we found in them actually a partner that was thinking like us, 
uh, they are also looking at, uh, I mean, they, they could be part of this conversation and they are also looking at digital payment and how to enable basically more, more digital payments uh, in, in Europe. And uh, that is one of their strategic um, angle. And uh, we saw a partnership uh, really uh, working well both sides. Them not just bringing investments, but also bringing their experience as a as a huge, the largest payment processor in uh, in Europe. So this complementarity is what made this uh, this deal interesting for both both sides. So they can sort of open some doors for you, bring yes. you some expertise, bring you some capabilities, mm-hmm. as well as as well as helping you with, exactly. with funding. Exactly. Okay. And to just to go back because it's a, it's a, it's an interesting conversation, the one on education. If I can, just mm. one minute mm, please. on this. Um, let me put it uh, just as an example to make myself understood. Would you give a Ferrari in the hands of an 18-year-old? <laughs> <laughs> but that's exactly what can happen. So basically, at 18-year-old, you can legally drive a Ferrari. Now, can you drive it in a wall? Yeah, you have a chance of driving it in a wall if you don't have the driving license, if you've not gone through education. It's a bit like the same here. We have parents coming to us and asking us, will you do something in crypto? Will you do something in this? Because my kid is actually betting on crypto and I would like to know what he does because I'm he, he knows more or she knows more than I do. So can you help us like frame it? Yes, of course, that, that's, that's, uh, that's the, the, the problem is that almost like society goes faster than tech in some areas. And this is one area where clearly uh, in the crypto space, you have seen like the crypto craze, teens in, pretty much everywhere in the world were really big on this, are still big on this. And so we cannot ignore this phenomenon is happening. So it's better that we tackle it with parents uh, and of course with teens and we offer the best possible program to educate them, but also to to learn by doing it in a framed way so that they they, they learn the basics. Uh, and you know, it, it's better to 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 lose seven uh, pounds when you are seven than to lose seven thousand pounds when you are twenty-seven, right? So just start small and then learn as you walk. I love your characterization of um, crypto assets as like a a powerful sports car, um, yeah. amazing in the right hands but dangerous um, with yes. an inexperienced driver. I also love the fact that you're very focused on Italy and picked an Italian sports car as your example. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're going to take a very quick break. Um, uh, pause here. We'll be back very shortly with more about crypto. The rise of data-driven financial services has opened up new ways for banks and lenders to better connect with their customers and offer exceptional user experiences. But to take advantage of these opportunities, we need to break away from traditional constraints. A new report from Tink shows how open banking can pave the way for faster and more responsible lending practices that are robust on risk and financially inclusive. To find out how Tink can help you transform lending, read the full report at tink.com forward slash 11FS. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story, which is that MasterCard will help banks offer cryptocurrency trading, which was reported in CNBC and elsewhere. So MasterCard is launching a program to let financial institutions offer cryptocurrency trading to their clients. The payments giant will act as a bridge between Paxos, a crypto trading platform already used by PayPal, and the banks. MasterCard and Paxos will handle regulatory compliance and security, 
two core reasons that banks cite for avoiding the asset class. MasterCard said its role was, is to keep banks on the right side of regulation by following crypto compliance rules, verifying transactions, and providing anti-money laundering and identity monitoring services. MasterCard will pilot the product in the first quarter of next year and then crank the handle to expand in more geographies. So let's start with uh, you, Jason. Is this the right time for a crypto product? Yeah, I mean, they say uh, now's the best time to build, right? Crypto winter or not, the the true believers are sort of staying heads down and continuing to work. Uh, I think in this specific case, looking at the players, right? So it's it's Mastercard that is working on offering this uh, to facilitate banks offering this to end consumers. Um, so I mean, I think you know, irrespective of the you know correction or you know, significant drop in the value of crypto assets, you know, that doesn't seem to have uh, dissuaded. You know, companies, particularly um, you know, regulated financial institutions, from continuing to wade into the space. I mean, I know we're we're talking about Mastercard, but also recently, Bank of New York Mellon uh, announced that it was going to begin custodying crypto assets. So you're continuing to see a push uh, by incumbent establishment financial services players to uh, get a piece of the action, so to speak. Alex, you, you described. Um crypto assets is a little bit like a Ferrari um, it, when we were talking earlier. I mean, <laughs> does having a bank involved sort of provide a bit more safety, a bit more insurance, uh, you know, for people who are crypto curious? Or, or what do you think of this? I mean, MasterCard, it's a bit like uh, the conversation we had about Apple and Goldman Sachs, for sure. MasterCard is a brand name. MasterCard is trusted. So it definitely, I would say, uh, by putting their name uh, around crypto, it helps, I would say, legitimize crypto beyond uh, those people who are really crypto fans. Um, so, so I think that's that's a significant step, right? Uh, we will see then later. Again, back to my my piece about education. It's not just about educating kids; it's about educating pretty much anyone who mm-hmm. puts their head on crypto. And so, I hope that Mastercard or the banks that will uh, work in this space. We'll have this in mind. It, we really have to to uh, accompany, to 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 be on the side of the users uh, of, of the facilities, so that they understand what they do. It's a new asset. It's a new. It's a new asset class. You have to understand what you do. Yeah, it's exactly. Guy, what do you think? Because many many of us know that you know if we deposit money in banks, it'll be protected, and you know there are sort of protection schemes in place. And is there a you know, what, what happens if people start putting their money into crypto products offered by the banks and they think that that's covered by some kind of deposit guarantee and it's not? What do you think, Guy? Are there, is this something banks should be offering to mainstream customers? Yeah, no, you made a great point. It's definitely, it, it could become misleading somehow because, um, you know, a lot of people have um, almost blind trust in banks and feel like, you know, everything is is taken care by them. Um, and I think especially when it comes to crypto, um, you know, we made a few times the point about education that's essential. And there's plenty of resources out there, but they're still not institutional, I guess, Um education program on crypto that's been sort of widely approved. So it's really about the single user and the single um, sort of consumer who's interested in exploring that market 
to learn about it. And obviously banks, but plenty of fintech platforms as well can help to sort of get the users closer to that and offer the right platforms, the right forums as well for people to better understand what they're getting into. But at the same time, you know, the moment you bring back the so-called middleman, you sort of kill what um, cryptocurrencies were born for. And I guess my personal views on crypto are very inconsistent because I'm one of those persons who's, who's really into cryptocurrencies, reading a lot. I've been covering the industry, speaking with a lot of crypto heads. I'm super curious. But at the same time, I'm not personally invested because I keep having this imposter syndrome of not knowing the market good enough. And I still have a bit of fear. So, you know, there's a pros and cons. Um, Obviously, you get a lot out of a big name, such as MasterCard, sort of backing um, the industry at large. But at the same time, um, I'm very... I'm very interested in what um, the sort of crypto hardcore uh, fans will, will will think of this because it changes a lot the whole vision and narrative around mm, decentralization of currencies. Yeah, I mean, exactly. There's an irony here, isn't there, Jason? In in, in the the big sort of players in centralized finance, you know, Mastercard and the retail banks, sort of piling into cryptocurrency when the vision was for an entirely decentralized currency. Does does that matter? Oh well, I mean the the you know the point I made earlier was about you know MasterCard banks wanting to get get their piece of the action. And I think you know I, I double down on that statement, right? You know, the uh, establishment banking sector and regulators, you know, ignored the crypto sector for a very long time. You know Five, six, seven, eight, nine years. Now, you know, particularly last year when the market cap money was pouring in both into the crypto markets themselves as well as VC dollars into companies building in the crypto space, you know, banks, financial institutions, you know, even Jamie Dimon, notoriously skeptical of cryptocurrency of Bitcoin, you know. JP Morgan is doing stuff in that space as well. You know, when when you know banks see an opportunity, even if perhaps uh, you know some of the individual players involved, you know, aren't believers, quote unquote. If they think there's a financial opportunity, they're going to try to exploit it. To answer your specific question, you know, does this mean you know crypto is dead? We've seen the narrative. Uh, shift, you know, repeatedly, right? I mean, if we're talking specifically about Bitcoin, it was supposed to be, you know, peer-to-peer payments without an intermediary. Well, that didn't work. It's too volatile. It's too slow. So it became digital gold. But inflation came last year. Uh, interest rates went up. What happened to Bitcoin and the rest of crypto? The value tanked. So it's not really an inflation hedge either. So you see this sort of continual iteration, both of how the market is functioning based on who the participants are, and that has changed, and in turn, the narrative of what is crypto for is changing as well. Yeah, very well put. Alex, I'm going to throw the last question to you. Um, we've, we've talked about what MasterCard is doing. Do you think any retail banks will want to offer this? And, and do you think they should? Uh, I'm pretty sure some will, some will not. <laughs> <laughs> I think it will be split. I think it will be split. It's back to this uh, recomposition of the value chain that uh, we are actors of or participants are looking at. 
this has started about 10 years ago. This will continue another 10 years. At the end of this de decade, the value chain of, let's say, moving money or, or creating value will be quite different to the one we had 10 years ago. It will be more decentralized. Uh, banks will play a role, but a completely different role to, to the one that we, we know them for. Uh, and there will be a host series of new actors. Um, we mentioned some names on this podcast, but I'm sure there will be another, like another whole series coming up in the next 10 years. Who will be this new intermediate layer will be between the end consumer and the, let's say, the, those who hold the assets. So I think that, again, looking at banks, retail banks in particular, some of them will decide to, to really go all in. Some of them will stay out because they see their value chain, their participation in the value chain being different because of their strengths and weaknesses, because of I mean, like regulatory uh, compliance, uh, you know, many different uh, reasons why you are in or out. But I don't think you can say blanket yes or no. I'm loving your perspective on how the industry is going to be reshaped. Thank you. And to add um, to Alex's point, that a big factor is um, the geography because I guess in different countries, in different areas of the world, the perception of cryptocurrency is critically different. If we think um, about uh, emerging markets, the way they look at cryptocurrencies, both in terms of P2P transactions, but also pilots of um, central bank digital currencies, um, the, the perception is completely different. So maybe we could see some um, mainstream adoptions and some more institutional players adopting uh, cryptocurrencies faster in certain countries rather than others. Definitely. Perceptions are definitely very different um, in different parts of the world. Okay, let's move on to our final story, um, which is that Italy's Medio Banca is acquiring fintechs to drive buy now, pay later growth. This was reported in the Fintech Times. Compass, which is the consumer credit arm of Italian investment banking group Medio Banca, has snapped up two firms in, the buy, in buy now, pay later in order to grow its own deferred payment business. Medio Banca has acquired a 19.5% stake in Heidi Pay, a Swiss fintech specializing in digital platforms to support buy now, pay later in e-commerce. And it has also acquired 100% of Swassi, an Italian fintech offering installment payments at point of sale. The two deals are designed to help Compass pursue its growth strategy in Buy Now Pay Later. According to Compass, its capability to acquire new clients through Buy Now Pay Later is expected to rise fourfold from 5,000 to 20,000 new clients per month. We reached out to Luigi Pace, Director of Marketing and Innovation at Compass, to ask how does the organization use Buy Now Pay Later? responsibly. BNPL is a way of providing credit facilities to customers, though they do not incur any cost or interest rate. The easy access and wide availability of these solutions at e-commerce checkout may lead users to get over-indebted with monthly installments which stock up. Therefore, players are supposed to responsibly offer BMPL solutions by inquiring credit bureaus to check customers' current exposure and also by managing frequent users. Only high-end tech solutions, as the ones that we have got, coupled with proved credit scoring capabilities, are able to combine a robust process with a great digital experience.
Gaia. So, um, as the Italian on the podcast, firstly, I'm going to apologize to you and our Italian listeners for my pronunciation. Um, but secondly, I'd like to come to you um, on this story first. Um, what was your reaction to this news? Is this, is this good news? Is this exciting? What, what do you think? Um, well, it's definitely exciting every time there's innovation, especially in, in Italy, which has been uh, a slow market when it comes to financial technology. I think that's obviously good news. And especially talking about buy now, pay later, I think um, the whole ecosystem internationally is getting very cautious when it comes to this service. It's great. It's exciting. Um, it's almost revolutionary when it comes to the to the credit system. But at the same time, you know, the, the risks for borrowers are clear and this is something that is being discussed more and more within the industry. So I think um, the fact that banks are starting to embrace this service is probably overall good because it's a way, as Luigi Pace mentioned, to do it more responsibly and in a way legitimize it and keep it in check. Obviously, it, it comes with risks because, uh, you know, on, on, on another end, it could limit innovation and it could sort of slow down the entire process because the beauty of BMPL is the, the fact that it's instant, it's swift, it's um, universal in a way, very limited um, background checks. And maybe the moment banks take over this service, um, it will radically change. For the better or the worse, it depends on where you where you place yourself in this in this conversation, I guess. And is it surprising to see Media Banker doing this? I mean, is is Media Banker a sort of classic old European merchant bank, or should we be thinking of Media Banker as maybe a bit more like a, an Italian sort of Goldman Sachs of an investment bank that's using its financial muscle to push into to retail? I mean, I think all the Italian banks are not famous for, you know, great innovation and groundbreaking technologies. But this has been changing. As I mentioned, the, the Italian financial technology and banking technology ecosystem was slow to gain attention. Um, but because now this year we got our first unicorns in, in this market with, you know, ScalaPay and SatisPay, um, new funding rounds, I think the whole market has sort of woken up. And Major Bank is not the only bank um, heavily invested in financial technology, Unicredit is a great example. Um, they've been striking partnerships with fintechs internationally, but also locally, which is amazing because it nurtures the, the Italian fintech scene. And I think they recently launched an investment venture laser focused on financial technology in partnership with Anthemis. So that's that's great news, I think, for the Italian market, especially as we head into turbulent times when it comes to the uh, national economy. Well, um, I think Britain can probably learn a bit from Italy about how to, <laughs> how to sort of manage the handover of prime ministers and how to deal with turbulent economic environments. So I feel as a Briton, I've got nothing uh, to say to an Italian <laughs> on that subject. Um, <laughs> no one has the, the magic formula to solve this. So. No. Um, Alex, you and your team must have been looking at Italy very closely, obviously, as you're, as you're planning to launch there, and you've got lots of new friends in, in, in Italy. Um, do you think banks should be offering buy now, pay later directly in, in, in Italy and, and more widely? What's your, what's your take on this story? Uh, again, uh, let, me, let me reply as well. It's interesting the way the question is asked because it tells us of what we are still missing. 
let me try to explain myself. You say, should a bank offer BNPL? Uh, this question makes sense in, in the old world. Basically, the old world, I mean, yesterday's finance, which was analog, productized, meaning the product was the bank, and centralized, right? We are moving to something tomorrow. The world of tomorrow will be digital, will be embedded, will be decentralized. Okay, this is, uh, that's the, the change in landscape. So then if, if you look at this tomorrow and you, you basically look at BNPL as one of the new things coming up, you, you, you ask yourself, actually, can you ask that question in the future? Mm-hmm. Can, can you actually ask someone and who then <laughs> whether someone can offer BNPL in a decentralized embedded world? So what I'm saying is that it's and it's difficult because we, we have not yet like fully uh, digested what's happening and it's still like a lot to go in the next uh, ten years twenty years right so so it's difficult for us to represent ourselves but uh, we have to think of whatever the customers in general uh, ask or do that's something you cannot ignore you have to take that into account if you don't well you could be dead. So you have to take into account and be responsible when you, when you go after a particular market. So like in anything else, BNPL, it's a, new, it's, a new, it's a new tool, a new instrument. Again, education is important. I would not like stress that uh, uh, again, but uh, it's important that you really go after, if you are a bank, that you go after the sector knowing what you're getting yourself into and you understand where the future, what, how the value chain will evolve the role of a, of a retail bank would be very different from what it used to be. Last word to you on this story, Jason. Do you, do you agree with Alex's analysis? I mean, I think generally, yes, right? As banker or banker-adjacent people, we are often guilty of thinking about it uh, in terms of siloed product, right? Do you offer a personal loan? Do you offer a credit card? Do you offer BNPL? But we have to step back and remember, the consumer is thinking about it in terms of does this solve a problem for me at this time? What gave rise to BNPL? E-commerce, specifically, particularly uh, clothing, uh, clothing retail, in the sense that, okay, if I want to buy something online, uh, I'm not sure if I want to keep it. You know, I'm buying this cute, whatever, jumper from ASOS. Uh, I have it sent to my house. I don't want all of that money coming out of my account up front because I might just return it. BNPL, mostly solve for that, particularly for people who didn't have a credit card or some other instrument they could revolve on. So, I mean, I think Alex's framing of, you know, thinking about it, should should a bank offer BNPL? Well, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. They should think about it in the context of, do they offer products that are delivered in a way that solves their customer's problem today? If not, does BNPL or some permutation of that help solve a consumer problem that they're not currently able to. So that's sort of how I would think about it. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, now for the section of the show that we're calling Big Click Energy, a quickfire roundup of some more click-worthy news this week. Digital Bank Bunk wins case against the Dutch Central Bank over artificial intelligence use. Bunk has heralded a landmark for digital banks as it won a case against the Dutch Central Bank, DNB. The digital bank took DNB to court as it wants to use artificial intelligence at the core of its anti-money laundering strategy, going against existing rules. 
Bunk says it's the first time a bank has decided to sue the Dutch central bank over an issue, as banks prefer to settle disputes behind closed doors. The DNB has already started renewing its banking policies in the past month to incorporate machine learning and other tech-enabled anti-money laundering strategies. Bunk CEO Ali Nicknam said, We made history today. The court has paved the way for progress. Um, this is a super interesting story. Uh, we had Ali on um, Fintech Insider only a, a few weeks ago. Really forward-thinking firm. I think one of the challenges for regulators is sometimes regulations written in the past didn't anticipate technologies that were invented in the future, i.e. technologies that have been invented now. Artificial intelligence plays a crucial role because machines can spot patterns in fraud faster than humans can. So very smart for Bunk to drive change through fast. And I think we'll probably see a bit more of that happening as certain firms just push the regulators to act quicker and respond to changes in technology to make sure that regulations are doing what they're meant to do of protecting customers rather than necessarily always following the letter of the law that was written maybe in the 1970s. Our next story is from Silicon Republic, which is that Revolut is expanding accommodation booking service to rival Airbnb. Revolut has announced that customers who use its accommodation booking feature can now avail of an expanded service that includes holiday homes. The update comes a year after Revolut initially launched its accommodation booking offering called Revolut Stays to enter the travel market. The company indicated last year that staking a claim on the re-emerging travel market post-COVID was part of its long-term plans. Stays let users browse and book for hotels and other accommodation on the Revolut app. Now users in the UK and the European Economic Area, which is most of Europe, can also choose from a selection of holiday homes on the platform. With its latest offering, Revolut may be hoping to poach people who use accommodation rental services such as Airbnb. So another super interesting story, Revolut really pushing out to try and become a super app, trying to find more ways of generating revenues from its customers, trying to find other things that are relevant to its users. Um, but dislodging Airbnb is a big ask. I think Revolut's got a long way to go um, to switch people over to start using that. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final section of the week. This week's last story is that Ed Westwick has teamed up with shares to champion a new era of social investing. This was reported in Fintech Finance. Hollywood star Ed Westwick is stepping into the business world by partnering with Europe's first social trading app, Shares. The Gossip Girl star has joined Shares as a business partner and stars in their first campaign, which launched this week. The campaign looks to debunk myths of the investment world, showing that investing can be social and accessible, simple, social and fun. Since launching in the UK in May 2022, Shares has won over 150,000 users. Westwick joins tennis stars Venus and Serena Williams, who snapped up a stake in the London investment app earlier this month. So, is it a good thing if actors start getting involved in fintech and promoting um, fintech and promoting new apps? What do we think? Alex, I'm that's thinking... not, that's, sorry. Yeah, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to come to you I, I first. That, 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 that's not a new phenomenon. I mean, uh, we've had celebrities teaming up with uh, with uh, brands targeted at younger investors. Uh, so it's, it's not something really new. But what is important is the following. I think the key is to make sure that the celebrity is relevant to the brand and to the audience, and not just you. You shouldn't just use a celebrity for fame's sake, right? So. 
there has to be a real connection between the brand and the celebrity. Otherwise, it's an empty voice. And this is extremely important, especially for the new generation, Gen Z, Gen Alpha, where they really take this very seriously. If you are faking it, you will not make it. I'm going to ask each of you who your who your sort of um, celebrity business partner would be, and I'm going to come to Alex last because it's a bit unfair. Because Alex is being a CEO, his answer might actually be a real answer. Um, <laughs> so, Gaia, first to you: if if you were if you were running a fintech, um, and who would your celebrity business partner be? Would you go for Venus and Serena Williams? Um, who would you who would you pick for your fintech uh, celebrity? Um, well, I guess if I were to open a fintech it would have it would be targeted to gen z's and millennials just because i probably (laughs) um you know identify myself as one of them and therefore i would choose someone who can speak to them probably someone like Billie eilish or timothee chalamet because you know the big fans they probably know the way they (laughs) they want to gen z's and millennials want to receive a message and so i would pick someone who can speak to them in in a true and honest way jason how about you um which uh which celebrities do you think would be strong and useful endorsers of fintech products yeah, I mean, I think the the themes um, that uh, both uh, Gaia and Alex mentioned are completely correct. Like, it needs to come across as authentic, align with the community, the audience you're trying to reach, and be aligned with the brand. Also, uh, want to stress, it should be you know uh, factually accurate and adequately disclosed. Unlike a certain Kardashian's recent run-in with. Uh, <laughs> One of the American regulators when it, when it came to uh, somewhat bogus crypto that uh, she was promoting. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm terrible with pop culture, so I, I may not have like uh, immediate celebrity that comes to mind. Um, so yeah, let's go with Billie uh, Eilish. I, then. I'm gonna, yeah, let's go with Billie Eilish then. <laughs> um, Alex, the, I'm conscious. I, I need. Sorry, go ahead. The plus of Billie Eilish would be that your entire marketing campaign would have spot-on soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> would indeed, um, Alex. I'm conscious. If I ask you the question, we've got to be very careful because obviously celebrity endorsements for things for children is a, is a whole different area. Um, and also, as an actual CEO, you, you could actually do this. Um, any any final thoughts on on who who you, hypothetically, if ever you were to partner with a celebrity, what sort of thing you might look, what sort of person you might look for? Uh, someone who has uh, turned their life around, who can speak to the value of uh, financial education firsthand. I'm thinking of someone like uh, Marcus Rashford for the financial inclusion space. Um, that's the name that would come to my mind. For, yes, uh, that, so yeah, the Manchester United footballer who's done a lot mm-hmm. of, of campaigning um, for particularly for people in you know very difficult financial circumstances. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, he's a he's an outstanding figure. I came up okay. with one. Oh, go go for it. Okay, so I would say Greta Thunberg for a uh, banking product with an ESG focus. Like that would be a brilliant mm-hmm. uh, either investor or like celeb, if you want to call her a celebrity, like endorsement tie-up. Love it. Greta Thunberg, Billie Eilish, and Marcus Rashford. Fantastic. Well, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much um, to our three guests today. Where can people find out a bit more about you? Firstly, Gaia. I guess on my social media, I usually share my work 
So follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Gaia Lamperti slash Gaias. And Jason? Uh, they can find the newsletter at fintechbusinessweekly.com and can find and follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn, uh, just searching Jason Mikula. And Alex? Well, since my name is so difficult to remember, just type CEO Go Henry on Google and you'll find me. <laughs> and as for me, I'm Benjamin Ensor, and you can find me on LinkedIn or on 11fs.com. So thank you so much to all of you for listening. Um, if you uh, enjoyed the conversation, please join us on uh, social media or email podcast at 11fs.com. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you to all my guests and goodbye. Goodbye.